God said, let there be an expanse between the waters separating water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above the expanse. And it was so God called the expanse sky. Evening came and then morning the second day. Then God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and he called the gathering of the water seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And it was so. The earth produced vegetation, seed-bearing plants according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Evening came, and then morning, the third day. Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. They will serve as signs for festivals and for days and years. They will be lights in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to have dominion over the day, and the lesser light to have dominion over the night, as well as the stars. God placed them in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth to dominate the day and the night, and to separate the light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. Evening came, and then morning, the fourth day. Then God said, Let the waters swarm with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the large sea creatures, and every living creature that moves and swarms in the water according to their kinds. He also created every winged bird according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. So God blessed them, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the waters of the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. Evening came, and then morning, the fifth day. Then God said, let the earth produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that crawl, and the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. So God made the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and creatures that crawl on the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, all the earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God said, Look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth, and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This food will be for you. For all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky, and for every creature that crawls on the earth, everything having the breath of life in it. I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw all all that he had made, and it was very good. Evening came, and then morning, the sixth day. So the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed. By the seventh day, God completed his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day. From all the work that he had done, God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, for on it he rested from his work of creation. Thank you, readers.
Let's, uh, <clears throat> let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for your work of creation. We praise you for your work of creation. We uh, enjoy it immensely. And uh, we ask, Lord, we thank you also for your word, your scriptures, the fact that you have revealed yourself to us <clears throat> in, a, in a variety of ways. We ask, Lord, that you would attune our hearts now towards you. Um, help us to attend to your word. We want your Holy Spirit to shape us and form us and mold us. Um, we want you to strengthen us. Um, we invite you to come and do so. And we want, Father, your priorities to be our priorities. We want your agenda to be our agenda. And we know we often stray from that. <clears throat> we know that we still battle a sinful nature. Help us to be successful in that battle. We know that grace has come and taught us to say no to temptation. Help us to do so. Um, and may the preaching of your word now and our attending to it uh, strengthen us in that desire to magnify you uh, in in our lives and in the world around us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I apologize. I need to get a little bit of water. <clears throat> so, uh, my family enjoys going to aquariums. Um, Shed Aquarium, we've been there a few times. Um, and it's, it's expensive. The only thing more expensive than the tickets at Shed Aquarium is, is the gas to get to Shed Aquarium, I think. Um, but we enjoy going to aquariums. And uh, a couple weeks ago, we were in Branson, and we went to the new aquarium there in, a Bran- in Branson. And that was a lot of fun. Um, I, we enjoy all the fish and all the variety of Sea, sea creatures. Some of what's fascinating is uh, is just is just the sheer variety of all the of all the creatures that you can see. Um, while we were there, my brother took some video of these uh, of of uh, these straw-like uh, vertical creatures that kind of dance around the grass there. Um, there's some there's some seahorses at the bottom. I don't know if you can see the seahorses or not. Uh, but, uh, when he was recording that, uh, when he was done, uh, he was done recording. I said, are you done recording? He said, yeah. I said, that's evolution, baby, isn't it? (laughs) And, uh, and we both, we both, uh, laughed like you did because we don't believe that at all. Uh, it's the design of God himself. Um, uh, the creator of all, uh, God as creator is what our, our passage is about today. Um, so, before we get into the passage, I just want to say, I want, I want to make a few comments about the relationship between Genesis 1 and science. Um, many see science in Genesis 1 as at odds, and that's the viewpoint that usually gets most of the publicity. Um, the truth is that there are many scientists who both affirm Genesis 1 and science and the doctrine of creation as it is taught in Genesis 1 and 2. Um, many years ago, uh, Ned and Glenna Hershey gave me this book. It's called In Six Days, uh, Why 50 Scientists Choose to Believe in Creation. And each chapter is, is brief, maybe six to ten pages 
and it's just uh, it, it's just uh, written by each particular scientist in this uh, particular volume, explaining why they believe that creation, as taught in Genesis, is true. And they're they're from different fields: uh, mechanical engineering, biology, biochemistry, medical research, physical chemistry, physics, mathematical physics, genetics, organic chemistry, horticultural science inorganic chemistry and, and the list goes on now, the point is that there are many uh, there are many scientists who have no problem with uh, the alleged uh, the alleged contradictions between Genesis 1 and uh, science I was reading one church leader who often speaks at universities and he always finds at these universities a number of faculty who are committed believers and what he's found interesting is that their numbers tend to be made up more of science and math professors um, than they do uh, professors of arts or psychology or English literature. And we could say more. We could talk about how most of the founders of the various fields of science were committed Christians. People like Francis Bacon, Robert Boyle, Sir Michael Faraday, Lord Kelvin, Lord Kelvin, <laughs> uh, Joseph Lister, Johannes Kepler, Sir Isaac Newton, Carl von Linnaeus, Charles Babbage, uh, Pascal, Samuel Morse, Matthew Fontaine Murray, Sir James Simpson, George Washington Carver, and the list goes on. We could talk about how it is the biblical worldview that has prompted, in fact, modern scientific inquiry. J. Robert Oppenheimer, who was a physicist of the atom bomb, Fame was not a Christian, but he is one of many non-Christian scientists who have credited Christianity with the birth of modern science. And there are various reasons for that, including the fact that Christianity teaches that this universe is an orderly universe and therefore governed by laws and can be studied. And also the fact that some of the scientists who, who got into science did so because they, they wanted to know this God better. Uh, to know God better was by studying his works. Another, and another reason for science, uh, Christianity sparked science, is the Christian view of good works. That if we can better people's lives through science, technology, or whatever, we should. We could talk about how the science that seeks to discredit Genesis 1 is widely debated. It is far from settled fact. And we could talk about how the science that uh, the science that is in question has to do with events in the past, events that are not repeatable and are not, uh, not um, able to be studied by the scientific method. It's not testable by the scientific method. At least the Christian understanding of the origins of the universe comes from a source who happened to be on the scene at the time. That would be God himself. All that to say that as believers we have good reason and I use that word carefully, we have good reason to take Genesis 1 as it stands. I am not suspending reason in order to accept Genesis 1 to be truth. And there are many, many, many people today and throughout history who have also found Genesis 1 to be perfectly reasonable. So just that aside with regards to the relationship between Genesis 1 and science. So what do we learn from Genesis 1? We learn some things about God. First of all, God is self-existent. God is self-existent. In the beginning, God. He created the heavens and the earth. 
We have the universe's origin story right here in Genesis 1. We have Earth's origin story in Genesis 1. We have our origin story right here in Genesis 1 and in 2. But there is no origin story for God because he has no origin. He is simply there at the beginning. He is the one who begins the beginning, but he himself is before the beginning. He is self-existent. He was not caused by another. People asked, who created God? And children ask, Mommy, who created God? Who made God? And the answer is no one. God doesn't have a creation point. He is eternal. God has never been non-existent. There is nothing else and no one else that is self-existent. You and I were created, and even now we are still dependent upon that power of God to sustain us. Were God to remove his hand from the physical universe, the physical universe would cease to exist. Look at Job 34. If he put his mind to it and withdrew the spirit and breath he gave, every living thing would perish together and mankind would return <clears throat> excuse me, would return to the dust. Colossians 1:17, in him all things hold together. So not only does he create creation, but he has to sustain it by his power too, or it ceases to exist. The deist view of God that says that God created the universe and then he went his own way and left it alone is impossible. God, he has to sustain it by his power. He alone is God. He alone is uncreated. Everything else is a creation. Every other living thing is a creature or a created being. The devil is a creature created by God. Now, God didn't create him as the devil. He created him as, a, as an exalted supernatural being, a cherub, according to Ezekiel 28. And the devil uh, perverted himself into what he is now. But the devil is not on an equal par with God. His power has been great in the past, and he still has some strength now, but his power is nothing compared to God's. Only God is self-existent. There is no one and no thing that can exist in its own right. There is no one and no thing that can exist apart from the sustaining power of God. So he's self-existent. He is also powerful. God is powerful. He spoke and it came to be. Let there be light, and there was light. Let the waters gather together and let dry ground appear, and it was so. Let the earth produce vegetation, and it was so, and on and on it goes. Seven times throughout, the book of, uh, throughout chapter 1, and it was so, God said, and it was so, and it was so, and it was so. God works alone. He has no help. It is not good for man to be alone, uh, God said in Genesis 2. But God can work alone. He works alone when he creates everything, and he doesn't suffer for it. And he doesn't experience any hindrance whatsoever. No hindrance to his work. It all comes about as he commands. I'm hindered all the time. <laughs> the things I want to accomplish, I'm hindered. Even the littlest things. I remember when, I, when, uh, when my kids were really little, and uh, I'd hear in the middle of the night, I'd hear them crying. And so I'd get up. I'd get up and go get them in order to bring him to Sarah. But, you know, it was, it was hard. It was hard to get up. And now, now, now I don't have to get him up, but it's hard for me to get myself up now in the morning. I'm hindered all the time. And I, I choose, you know, I inevitably choose the wrong line. I always get in the longest line. It looks like the shortest, but I always get in the longest line wherever I'm at. If I go to McDonald's, you know, they have, they have two lines now for the drive-thru. What is that about? That's just agony for me because I know I have to pick one, and it's going to be the longest line. Um, 
that's that's what's going to happen. You know, inevitably I'll get behind, I'll get in the shortest line, and what happens? The car in front of me, there's all of a sudden there's speaker problems, right? You know, they can't communicate, or the person in front of me is ordering lunch for all the employees at Sweetwater. That's what they're doing. Yesterday, yesterday I was in line. I had already written this sermon, and I already knew what I was going to say about McDonald's. And yesterday I was in line at McDonald's, and there was one car in front of me, and he was he pulled up he pulled up to the to the speaker, and his window was up. Okay, and so the people are yelling, "Can I take your order? Can I take your order?" Thinking, "Come on, guy, roll down your window." He's he's on the phone. He's on the phone, and he's having an animated conversation. And he, he looks around, and he point he holds up his finger type thing. But, you know, I always pick. I'm hindered. You know, all I want is a fillet of fish, and and I'm hindered. But God can fill the ocean with fish, and it's in an instant. There's absolutely no hindrance for him at all. Um, God creates light and land and fish and birds and animals and billions and billions of stars, and he doesn't break a sweat. He speaks, and everything leaps into existence. And you say, yeah, but he had to rest on the seventh day. But that day of rest was not rest because he was tired. It was rest as in, I'm done. It was the rest of completion, like when an artist finishes the painting and steps back. God is not sleeping because he's tired. He has stopped because he's done. Psalm 121, he never sleeps. He never slumbers. Well, then, also, God is wise. God is wise. We admire Thomas Edison for his perseverance, right? You know, however many times, 999,000 times, whatever, that he tried to create the perfect the light bulb, the incandescent light bulb, and he finally got it right. But there are no missteps like that for God. In the late 90s, uh, Harvard built this uh, state-of-the-art athletic facility uh, for its students and its athletes. And um, it was completed, and students and the athletes went in, and they realized all of a sudden that they had forgot to put in shower facilities at all in this athletic facility. And people were griping that supposedly the brainiest university uh, get, has this major design flaw for its athletes. I remember reading about the construction of a brand new bus garage. It was going to be a great, they built this nice bus garage and when it was done, they went to drive the first bus in and guess what? The, the, it wasn't, the doors weren't tall enough for these buses to fit in. But there are no missteps like that for God. Um, you know, and as complicated as the light bulb is or a bus garage, they don't hold a candle to the complexity of the universe. The universe is intricate in design. There are a number of variables that have to be just right in order for human life to exist and survive on this planet, including the particular strength of gravity, the distance of the Earth from the sun, the color of the sun, the position and the size of Jupiter and Saturn, the relatively isolated position of the solar system within the Milky Way, the composition of water, the presence of the moon, and the list goes on about all these things that have to be just right in order for life to be sustained on our planet. One columnist titled his article on these things, 13 Incredibly Lucky Earth Facts. Um, it's not really about luck, is it? It's about design. It's about wise design, about a God who knew what he was doing when he created the heavens and the earth. 
Uh, he remembered the gills for the fish. He remembered, oh yeah, gravity, you know. He didn't go, oh yeah. He knew gravity had to be in place. He didn't forget to put the seeds in the apples, you know, so that the apples could, um, so that there could be other generations of apples. Um, Psalm 104. How countless are your works, Lord. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. I remember years ago watching a program on PBS, as many years ago, this woman, a scientist, and she had devoted her, her career as a scientist to studying slugs. Not, you know, the, the animal slugs, the slimy ones. Um, she, she had devoted her career to studying slugs. She was absolutely fascinated by them. Now, how could someone be fascinated for years and years by slugs? Because they exhibit God's superior wisdom. Because God uses the boundless resources of his perfect wisdom to make even slugs. And try as hard as you might, I don't think you can make a slug. Several times throughout Genesis 1, we see God's evaluation. And God saw that it was good. And God saw that it was good. And then when he was all done, he looked, stepped back and said, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. In other words, it was perfect. It was right. There were no design flaws. There were no execution flaws. And then God is artistic. God is artistic. He's creative. We see on day three that he makes all this vegetation, all these trees, and all these plants. And it, you know from your experience, that's a huge variety. On day four, he makes the sun and the moon as well as the stars. That last phrase, as well as the stars, is worded almost as an afterthought. You know, he made the greater light, he made the lesser light, and he also made the stars. You know, and we know billions and billions of stars. On day five, he fills the waters with all sorts of sea creatures and he fills the skies with all sorts of birds. Again, a huge variety. On day six, it's all the land animals. You know, the, the, the livestock, uh, the wildlife, uh, the creepy crawly um, animals. Again, a wide variety. The variety of creation is stunning, and the beauty of it is stunning. Several of you, from time to time, have told me over the last several years how much you enjoy a sunset or a sunrise. Um, the, just, just, just the sheer beauty of it. We love to travel to take in the variety of landscapes across the country or around the world. Okay, so just just a question. Uh, mountains or beaches? How many of you would rather go to the mountains? How many of you would rather go to the beaches? Okay, about half and half type of thing. Yeah. How many of you would rather go to Kansas? <laughs> oh, oh, a couple of you. All right. For those of you watching the YouTube video who are from Kansas, I apologize. Mountains and canyons and beaches and waterfalls and forests and prairies and rivers and oceans. We love to go to zoos and aquariums to take in God's create creativity. And many get wrapped up in telescopes to see what's in the night sky. And many get wrapped up in microscopes to see what we can't see with the naked eye. Also, we learn from Genesis 1 that God is communicative. That is, he is a talking God. He is a talking God. He speaks all of these things into existence. He speaks all of these things. And God said, and God said, and God said, then God said. And then he also speaks blessings to the sea creatures. And he speaks uh, blessings to the birds. And he speaks blessings on the man. 
and on the woman on day six. And then on day seven, he speaks blessings on the seventh day and he declares it holy. And then in Genesis two, we see him talking with Adam. And in Genesis three, he talks with Adam and Eve. That's not a pleasant conversation, but he's talking with them. In Genesis four, he's talking with Cain. In Genesis six, he's talking with Noah and on and on it goes. Whatever God is, he is not silent. He is communicative. He is a God of revelation. He doesn't leave us to figure things out. He points it out. Psalm 103.7 says, He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. He gave his law to his Old Testament people through Moses. But in these last days, according to the book of Hebrews, he has spoken to us by his word, which is his son, Jesus Christ. The son of God, the Lord Jesus, is also referred to as the word of God. And, of course, we also have the scriptures, which are also referred to as the word of God. And does he talk with how does he talk with us today? Primarily through the scriptures. That's how he talks with us today. Primarily through the scriptures, the word of God. As we study them, the spirit uses them to impress upon us the mind of God and the will of God. And by the way, the spirit will never impress upon you something that is contrary to the scriptures. He will never impress upon you something that is contrary to the scriptures. If you feel impressed to do something which the scriptures clearly tell you is wrong, that's not the Holy Spirit that is talking to you. At any rate, what we we see is that God is communicative. He is a talking God. And then God is benevolent. God is benevolent. God is good. We see God's blessings. We see God blessing the creatures that he makes. He's blessing them. For instance, the sea creatures and the birds on day five, he blesses them. Verse 22, so God bless them, be fruitful, multiply and fill the waters of the sea and let the birds multiply on the earth. And then we see him blessing man and woman on day six. Verse 25, uh, 28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky and every creature that crawls on the earth. And then he further blesses the animals and humanity in verses 29 and 30 by giving them vegetation for food. The climax of creation is the creation of humanity, uh, man and woman. In one sense, the whole creation is set up for them, for us. God creates and designs our home, and then he creates us to live in this new home as um, as he has made it for us. And remember, this home is good. Seven times, good, good, good. And then at the seventh time, it's very good. God only not, not only create, God only not, <laughs> God not only creates us, but he creates a home for us, a home that can sustain us, a home that will bring us joy and he provides for us. Not only is God's greatness reflected in his creation, but his goodness is reflected in it as well. So there, there are six things right there that we learn about God from creation. And more could be said. What are some of the implications, then, of Genesis 1? Let me just share with you quickly some implications. We're going to run through these kind of fast. One is that we have a creator. We have a creator. We are not at the top of the flow chart, so to speak. We are under someone. We are not on our own. The Bible makes clear that we are accountable to our creator. Another thing is that our creator is intelligent and reasonable. It's not an impersonal force. God is a person with personality, with capability of relating. He is one we can have a relationship with us, and he is benevolently disposed towards us. Also, there's no one like him. There's no one like him. 
He alone is uncreated. Everyone else, no matter how great, are dependent. We're created by him and are dependent upon him. He is superior, he is superior to all in power and in wisdom. And if he is good and if he is willing, we should not fail to go to him with our difficulties and our hang-ups. And, of course, he is good and he is willing. He invites us time and time again in his word to take refuge in him. For instance, Psalm 62, 8. The invitation of the word of God, trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. Whatever's on your mind, whatever's on your heart, take it to the Lord. God is a refuge for us. One pastor writes this, he says, Life with God does not mean merely believing on paper various doctrines, while at the same time channeling all of our old hopes and dreams into the things of this world. Nothing in this vacillating world can be a final refuge for us. Rather, our only safety is to channel our deepest trust into God himself, to make him our refuge, our stronghold, and our shield. Another implication is that the creation was perfect. The creation was perfect. And notice that verb, there was. Excuse me just a minute. I need to grab a tissue. The creation was perfect. It was very good. It is not now. It is not perfect now. The Bible teaches that when humanity fell into sin, creation was also negatively affected. Look at Romans chapter 8. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage of corruption into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Creation was subjected to futility that came about because of the sin of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. There is much about creation that is still good. It still, still sustains us. It still provides for us, but it is not what it was. Even as man's sin brought corruption on, hum, on humanity, so also did that same sin bring corruption into creation. But the Bible also teaches that one day there will be a new heavens and a new earth that will also be perfect. Another implication is that there is a stratification of created life, or there are levels to created life. Plants on the low end, humans on the high end, animals in the middle. Humans are to subdue and rule over in a benevolent sort of way. Plants are given to animals and humans to eat, for instance, in Genesis chapter 1. And then another implication, this one has always seemed too obvious to mention in the past, but now apparently it's not so obvious. When God made humanity, he cast us into two genders. Uh, how many genders are there? Genesis 1 answers that question. What's the answer? Two, right. And for at least three and a half millennia, two has been the accepted answer, even by those who don't accept Genesis chapter 1. But for the last five or seven years, that answer has sometimes been contested, as you know. I don't contest it. And then another implication is that men and women are made in the image of God. Men and women are made in the image of God. We reflect God in some ways. We are cast after his likeness. How are we in his likeness? Well, if you ask six theologians, you'll get six different answers with some overlap. Perhaps in terms of the ability to have relationships. Perhaps we're in his likeness in, the, in terms of the fact that we are moral creatures. 
that we have the ability to love, perhaps in terms of the blessing pronounced upon us in verse 28, that we are to subdue the earth and to govern, to rule, to have dominion. Whatever it is, being cast in the image of God is a high calling and a great honor to be made in that image. So that's, that's, that's some of Genesis 1. We could spend a, lot, a long time on Genesis 1. And some of you think we have spent a long time on Genesis 1. But let's, let's just respond real quick. What, how should we respond? And I want to give you three ways that we can respond to the teaching of Genesis 1. One is to reverence him. Reverence him. He is worthy of your praise. He is worthy of your worship, just even on the basis of creation. Worthy of your gratitude. The Psalms sometimes talk about how it is fitting to praise the Lord, how it is appropriate to praise the Lord. And one of the reasons is because of creation. He created you. He created everyone around you. He created this home for you. Meditate on the truth that God is the creator of the heavens and the earth and let it lead you into awe of him. Praise him and worship him for who he is, for what creation reveals about him. A second response is to joyfully submit to him. Joyfully submit to him. This is God's world that we live in. It belongs to him. We belong to him. We are in his world. There are natural laws to this world that we have discovered and that we respect. For instance, like the law of gravity. A few years ago, I read a book called uh, Rocket Men, and it was about, it was the story of the Apollo 8 mission, the first mission where, um, where uh, human beings were sent to the moon. They didn't land on the moon, but they circled the moon. And I was just fascinated by all the science that had to be right and precise. Um, they were respecting the laws, the physical laws of this universe in order to make sure that the guys made it there and in order to make sure that they made it back as well. Um, There are also moral laws that he has revealed to us in his word that we should also respect like we do the physical laws of this universe. Um, And we break those moral laws to our own destruction, to our own damage. How much better is it for us to submit to God, especially when he has created us and this world for our benefit and for our good? And once you believe it is, it is for our good, uh, the, cre- the, the moral laws around us, you will joyfully submit to him, for you know that his design is what will bring you the most joy in the end. The third one, perhaps the most important, is to make sure you're a part of the new creation. Make sure you're a part of the new creation. The truth is, because of sin, this creation is marred and it's faltering, it's sinking. But there is a new creation coming. And the Romans 8 passage that we read earlier uh, alluded to that. There's a new world coming. And the Lord Jesus is at the helm of that new creation. This world is passing away. But the new heavens and the new earth will be beautiful and glorious. As wonderful as this one is, with all of its flaws... The one that is coming will far surpass what we have now. The Bible gives us glimpses of this. For instance, in Revelation chapter 21, the first eight verses, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea no longer existed. I also saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will no longer exist. Grief, crying, and pain will exist no longer because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. He also said, Write, because these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give water as a gift to the thirsty from the spring of life. The victor will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowards, unbelievers, vile, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So there is a, there's a marvelous new creation that is on the way, but not, not everyone will fit will be able to be in that new creation. It's available to everyone, but not everyone will take advantage of it. If you aren't believing on Jesus, you need to do so. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Those are the ones who will be in the new creation. Those who are in Christ Jesus, those who are believing on the Lord Jesus, those who are following him, who are abiding in him, who are keeping in step with him. That's who's in the new creation. And that gospel message is available to everyone. It's available to everyone. But it's only those who will receive that gift of salvation who will be saved. It's only those who receive that gift of salvation, who put their faith in Jesus Christ, who will be a part of that new creation. If you aren't believing on Christ, you need to do so. And you will be delivered out of this old creation and brought into the new one. First John 2.17 The world and its desires, the world we live in, is passing away. It's the man who does the will of God who lives forever. It's those who are in Christ Jesus who will be in the new creation. So make sure that you are part of the new creation. I'm going to close in prayer and then we're going to sing a song in response talking about uh, this is my father's world. Father, we thank you for the gift of creation. We thank you for the truth that is in Genesis 1. We thank you for the revelation that is in Genesis 1. Uh, we praise you for the creation. We, uh, it sustains us. It's our home. Uh, yes, it's faltered. Yes, it's under condemnation because of our sin. And yet there's still many marvelous things about it. Um, Father, I do pray that everyone in here will put their faith in Jesus Christ. I pray that everyone in here will receive that free gift of salvation that is freely offered, freely given. It was costly to you, the, the, the death of your son, the death of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, his shed blood, uh, but it's freely given to us. And I pray, Lord, that everyone in here would trust in you. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.